Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, page 45 on a Blue Pew Bible. Happy spring to everybody. It's like winter wasn't even that bad this year. It's like, didn't even happen. Um, Well, hey, before we get going, one uh, resource I want to highlight for you and just encourage you maybe to think about is uh, there's a a publisher called Crossway, crossway crossway.org. And every book of the Bible, it has these single-volume books. So this is Exodus. And if you kind of see on the inside, on the left side, it has the text. On the right side, it has a page for notes on every single page throughout. Um, and actually, a few members from Grace had notified me that these scripture journals, they're called, um, from other books of the Bible. And so we just I got one for each of the staff going into this series. We're going to be in Exodus for until August, right? And so there's going to be this kind of opportunity for us to just dig in this together. And if you go on crossway.org, uh, scripture journal for Exodus, it's like eight bucks or nine bucks, um, something like that. Um, would l- just encourage you to do that. And as we go through as a church through it in our preaching ministry to uh, whether you want to use it as a devotional where you yourself kind of anticipating the next passage or studying, writing questions. I love hearing from people from Grace as they're studying a passage that we're going to be preaching on and just giving me their questions or some of their feedback. What did God show them in that text? Um, Or to just use it for sermon uh, notes and things along those lines. Uh, So I just think it would be edifying. Um, I have no partnership with Crossway. There's no royalties here. Uh, This is purely for your edification and just wanted to um, highlight that. Well, Um, If you remember, if you were here this past year, there was a Sunday that I talked about a pastor in China. And I I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I'm just going to go with it. Pastor Wang Yi, uh, Y-I. And he was detained by the Chinese government in late 2018 uh, for preaching the gospel, for calling his church to be faithful, even in the midst of persecution, for increased oppression in China. He was not calling for rebellion against China. He was actually calling for the church to submit to Chinese authorities where they can, but to not forsake the gospel, to continue to live out and preach the gospel. So he was arrested along with many church members. A lot of church members were then released. Pastor Wong was not. Um, And then he was detained this whole past year. And you might have seen in the news, uh, right at the new year, uh, December 31st, the Chinese government came out and finally rendered judgment on Pastor Wong. Uh, They did not give him a public trial. They did not release any of their secret information they claimed to have, but they charged him with, um, quote, subversion to state power. They sentenced him to nine years in prison. And we know nothing of what those conditions of that prison term is going to be. Um, We surely have no confidence that it will just be nine years, even though nine years is already way too much and unjust Um, But this is one of the more well-known cases coming out of China that um, has been spotlighted ever since uh, the Chinese government in 2017 kind of announced their desire to increase their crackdown on gospel-preaching, non-state-sponsored churches. With the desire to eliminate the threat of this growing population um, that threatens the power of a government over its people. And the timing of this story, of the sentencing that was carried out, comes um, alongside the start of our series in the book of Exodus. And it's this stark reminder for me uh, that, as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it, there's truly nothing new under the sun. That history always repeats itself. 
that history is just a constant cycle of different stories maybe, different people involved, different countries or nations, but history just repeats itself. The motivational principles and heart behind what happens is a constant recurring cycle. And I, I think one of the main reasons to study uh, history in general, uh, but certainly biblical history in particular, is that our current day is just a repackaged version of what's happened in the past. And of all the things we learn in studying history, the foundational lesson that we as a church can take comfort in is that in it all, God remains. He is unchanging yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter what or who tries to shut him down, it won't happen. And so I just kind of say that going into our passage this morning. We're going to see the oppression of a people group. And I just kind of want to say... you know, specifically about this passage in this morning's sermon is that we're going to cover an event that happened about 4,000 years ago. And yet it's going to bring up issues which you're going to find are going to become strikingly relevant to our world today. And we are going to hit on some sensitive topics that are current talking points in our culture, in our political landscape. So if it starts getting warm in here, it's kind of warm in here, just as is. But this sermon's going to, in all seriousness, address some pretty sensitive things. And, and I just want to say, uh, for those who have kind of been here for a long time, hopefully you can know and affirm, I'm not, I don't seek to be a provocative preacher. Like, I, I don't like stirring the pot just for the sake of it. In fact, if anything, I probably veer the other way. I, if I'm not careful, I'll avoid certain things that I should step into and should address. Um, but when we preach through books of the Bible, I talked about last week why we do it. We're going verse by verse through this book. You know one of the other reasons why I love doing it? Because I can't avoid hard things if we go through a book of the Bible. And I can't be accused of choosing a pet topic that I just love trying to talk about. Because you know what? If the text addresses it, we're going to address it. And that's going to come up uh, this morning um, that we're going in. And so, um, again, just uh, at the outset of the sermon, and honestly, the outset of a 2020 election year, Um, We will address political issues that the Bible addresses. I will never endorse a candidate. I will never align myself or this church with a single party. And my encouragement is that if you primarily identify yourself with being on the right or being on the left before you identify as a Christian, chances are there's going to be some things I'm going to say you're not going to like. I got something in this sermon for everyone, all right? Just kind of put it that way. And and I just pray, my prayer all week in preparing this is that our minds and hearts would be prepared to hear what does God's word say? And how can we think wisely in this world? So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 8. And we're going to take it through the end of chapter 1. But we're going to begin with just verses 8 through 14 of Exodus 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. 
and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Well, how quickly can things turn in the Bible's storyline? The the first seven verses that we saw last week recap the end of Genesis when Joseph is a Hebrew who rose to prominence in Egypt, number two in command over all of Egypt. And when a famine hit the Middle East, he was able to bring his father, his brothers, their families down to live in Egypt. There was 70 of them total. They came with Egypt's blessing. Everything was good. Joseph and his brothers end up passing away, and his family began to multiply, and this family became a nation as God promised they would. So as the generations pass, they grow, and they grow, and they grow, and now the land of Egypt is filled with the Hebrew people, according to Moses. But we find that this blessing now presents a problem. Remember, this is hundreds of years after Joseph. So the Hebrew people are kind of grandfathered in, so to speak, in the land. New pharaohs come to power, Hebrew people remain, they continue to multiply, but now there's a leader who comes to power, and he doesn't like it. He kind of looks around, takes stock of the situation, and goes, wait a minute, there are way too many Hebrew people in our land. And historically, there are two potential pharaohs that commentators, historians believe was the one that was in Exodus 2. That's being talked about, but here's what's important. Moses makes a point by not giving us his name. He's just Pharaoh. And he's head honcho over one of, if not the most powerful ancient kingdoms in the world. And this Pharaoh comes to power, and he doesn't know Joseph. A couple things that could mean. It could mean he's never heard of Joseph, but chances are he's aware of history. He's aware of the history of his own kingdom, So it's not that he doesn't know about Joseph. It's really, he just doesn't care about Joseph. Like, who is Joseph to me? That was generations ago. That was a previous regime. Why should I be loyal to a foreigner and to all these people who came from him? Um, and, And so we can understand this, right? Like in any organization, any sports team, any company, when leadership changes, doesn't the rest of the organization tend to change as well? All right, so this past week, the New York Giants hired a new coach, Joe Judge. Sounds like a name you'd get in witness protection program, okay? I'm just saying, but just Joe Judge comes out of nowhere. He is the head coach of the Giants, came from the Patriots. Now I have another reason to not like the Giants. Um, But what happens with the coaching change in the NFL? He comes in, and the whole staff, the coaching staff, changes too. Why? Because Judge isn't expected to keep Shermer's coaches and trainers and staff. And and actually, George McGovern, who was um, a member here, one of our missionary partners, uh, was chaplain for the Giants for a long time. Um, He would say, when a coach comes, a coach has a right to even change the chaplain. Like, we're going in a different direction. Oh, really? What direction are you trying to go in? I don't know. But this is what a head coach in the NFL gets to do. So he doesn't know them, meaning... He doesn't owe anything to that previous staff and regime. And if you're wondering, did you just compare the giants to Pharaoh in Egypt? Yes, uh, I did, and I meant it. Um, So he comes in, he's like, Joseph, don't owe him anything. Hebrews are foreigners. And it's not just that there's a lot of them. There's another problem. They're not just in the land. They're in the best land. Genesis 47, when Joseph originally approached that Pharaoh at the time about bringing his family to come from the Middle East, 
He introduces Father Jacob to Pharaoh, and we read this. You don't have to turn there. It says Genesis 47, 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. This nation is in the best of the Egyptian land. And so Pharaoh looks at all of this and goes, no, no more. And he comes up with a short-term plan, and then we'll see a long-term plan of oppression. But number one, Pharaoh's short-term plan to oppress them. And here's the pathway to oppress a people group. It is fear that turns to hatred, which leads to oppression. If you're taking notes, write that down. Here's the pathway across history that has been repeated over and over again to oppress a people group, fear of them, which leads to the hatred of them, which then leads to the oppression of them. But it always starts with fear. Verse nine, the people of Israel are too many. They are too mighty for us. You see, they're a threat. What if they turn on us? If, if war breaks out and our enemies come, they could turn on us. They, we're in trouble. All oppression is rooted in the fear of man. It always starts with fear of what might happen unless action is taken. And so it's a fear of man that turns to hatred. Pharaoh now begins to hate the Hebrews because of this perceived threat to his control and safety. Because all hatred of people is rooted in a potential loss of control. We can't trust them. Eventually they'll take over. What if they grow bigger? We're going to grow smaller. This is a zero-sum game. If the Hebrews succeed, the Egyptians fail. Their blessing is our curse. We cannot coexist. And it's this resentment and it's fear that turns to hatred because if we're honest, it's easier to justify oppressing somebody if we hate them, isn't it? Hatred that leads to oppression. So he says, hey, here's the plan. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Let's enslave them. And you can see the phrases that are used. Um, They afflicted them with heavy burdens, verse 11. They were oppressed, verse 12. They worked with them ruthlessly, verse 13. They made their lives bitter, made them work as slaves, verse 14. And what they did was, it was kind of a dual aim. We're going to have them build cities that will also be fortifications. So I'm a big map guy. Here was your first map in Exodus. Okay, so on the screen you have... um, Top right is the land where Jacob and Joseph's family came from. That's the land of Canaan. They come down into the land of Egypt where they um, settle is in the blue square. Here's the thing about Egypt. To the west and to the south, it's all desert. They're not threatened by anybody coming and taking them over. The only threats to Egypt is coming from the northeast. And it's this little strip of land. And so now this is where the people came from. This is where potential enemies would come from. So he's going to use these to build two cities in that blue box Ramses and Pitam, and we're going to maintain control. Fear of man that turns to hatred, that leads to oppressive policies that will dehumanize a group of people in order to maintain control. This is the pathway of oppression, and it has happened over and over and over again across history. The transatlantic slave trade with England and America enslaving African people in the 18th and 19th century. Hitler and Nazi Germany with the Jews in the 20th century. The Chinese government with pastors and Christians in the 21st century. It's a fear of a perceived threat 
and then a hatred for them and that threat, and then oppressive policy to eliminate the threat. Especially people groups that don't look like me or sound like me or live like me, this is the group we often fear. And this pathway, it explains these kind of large-scale historical events, these human um, rights disasters, but they can occur on small interpersonal levels every single day. In minds and hearts of people who we might not consider evil, including ourselves from time to time, but in our fallen nature, we can tend to get very tribal. We can tend to get very wary of people who are not like us. And if we're just very honest, even in our landscape today, um, the, the way, not everybody, but the way many people even talk about immigration, even talk about refugees, can expose this pathway. And I want to be careful here. One of the problems of modern politics is that we pretend like history and biblical history and America is like a one-to-one -one correlation. It's not. All right, and, and that's true on both sides of the aisle, wherever you are politically, that we can be guilty of this, where the, the biblical narrative of Exodus is not equivalent to American immigration. There, there's illegal versus illegal. There's the fact that a country does have a right to enforce its borders. All those things that I think everybody can agree on. But surely, hear me, surely on a heart level, when we hear or maybe feel an opposition to immigration, which is based upon a principle of, but they don't look like us. They don't talk like we do. And they don't worship like us. And, and what if they come in and just take over? And you hear talking points like, we're losing our country to them whatever them is, to their lifestyle. We're losing our identity. Brothers and sisters, this is the same pathway of impression that Pharaoh enforced. It's a fear of a people group that leads to hatred, which then endorses oppressive policies in order to maintain power. And whether that's happened on large-scale levels, whether that's even occurring in our own hearts, we just need to be honest. That's wicked. That needs to be repented of. That's not from God. But we do acknowledge that the Hebrew people were enslaved by Pharaoh. And, and we can also think that, well, that's 2020, man. We don't deal with slavery anymore. And on some level, with our history of slavery, that is true in our country. But did you know that there is still today an estimated 30 to 40 million people in the world who are currently enslaved? You know where the majority of it is? Sex slavery. Human trafficking is the second largest organized crime sector in the world. And it's rooted in dehumanizing people for sexual perversion, for greed. And um, I, when I hear stories about it, when I read about it, I'm going to be honest, even as a pastor, I will get, like, these things kind of shake me up a little bit. Like, even I'm sitting there reading and thinking and going, God, like, how can this be possible? Like, this level of evil, like, I understand evil exists, but, like, the, the stories, the, the realities that so many millions of people are working through, like, God, how can this be? Like, how do you describe a good God to an eight-year-old girl who's being trafficked and whose body is being sold multiple times a day for, for adult men? How do you explain a good God to her? I could spend an hour on that question alone 
But while we don't know the answer to everything, we do know that suffering in this world on every level is a reminder to us, this world ain't it, man. This world is not home. This is why salvation is needed, and our home is elsewhere. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, says this, The whip of persecution makes us learn that this is the house of bondage and moves us to long after and seek for the land of liberty, the land of joy. So if we're back in Exodus 1, you have Moses, the author. He cues us into uh, some level of comfort we can have, even in the midst of pain, um, of the Israelites suffering. When, when, when verse 10, Pharaoh says, let us deal shrewdly with them. You know why? We're going to keep them from multiplying. But then verse 12, Moses, very intentional with his words. I love it. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. God's promises will never fail. God will not be overpowered. He will not be overtaken. And church, in 2020, if there's one promise we can kind of cling to together, it's the one that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew 18. After Peter proclaimed, you are the Christ, he says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, enslaving and brutally persecuting the Israelites was not going to slow down their growth. It wasn't working. He had to go to plan B. So he takes it a step further. Let's keep reading. Exodus 1, 15 to 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We saw Pharaoh's short-term plan of oppression. Now we see his long-term plan of oppression. Short-term, dehumanize them. Long-term, destroy them. And this long-term plan, even for Pharaoh, seems a little bit more underground. Seems a little bit more secretive. Because he kind of goes to these two midwives almost secretly. Shipra and Pua. In all likelihood, they're not the only midwives over all of Israel. That'd be a big job. But they're probably overseeing the group of midwives that serve the Hebrew women. And he gives this simple, very chilling command. When the Hebrew women give birth, right away, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, let her live. It's kind of a strange command at first. If he wanted to stop multiplication, if he just wanted to stop growth, wouldn't it make sense to kill the daughters? They're the ones who are going to be reproducing. Why kill the boys? The reason, again, is rooted in the text itself. What was Pharaoh's biggest fear? Verse 10, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. So he wants to kill the boys because he's afraid they're going to grow to become men and there'll be men who will join forces that will destroy us. 
so we can get inside his sick mind a little bit here. Here's the solution. We kill the boys, they don't go into the army. We keep the girls, we keep our workforce. Kill the boys, let the girls live. But the motive is control. He wants to control them, so he will oppress them. And it's going to happen through a seemingly the most brutal of horrors maybe we could ever think of, killing babies, infanticide. The most powerful man taking advantage of the most vulnerable to maintain control. All right, let's talk about today. Today, infanticide, still a crime. Still a horror, I think, in the minds of all people. It's a wicked evil. But I cannot talk about this today without also acknowledging what I see to be the most utterly blindness of our culture when it comes to abortion. And in my worldview, abortion is just as awful as infanticide. It's the most vulnerable group in the world, children, born and unborn. And so I, I want to care- follow my own advice, right, even from before. I, making direct correlation from Exodus 1 to today, can't do it. I understand discussion is needed. I understand we got to talk about policy. I understand nuance is required. But at its foundational level, when it comes to life, God designed life. I do not see a difference between the unborn and the born. And I think we are in a society that has fooled themselves into believing that an unborn child does not represent a life. I think you've got to jump through a lot of hoops to get there. And I do believe abortion is oppression of the most vulnerable in the name of control. So just as a church should stand against racist views, white supremacist views, we should also stand for life, both of which lead to oppression. While also, hear me, extending grace and compassion to those who feel pinned under the shame of abortion in the church. Sometimes the church, and maybe Grace Church, can unintentionally, while standing for life, put up a neon sign that says that anyone who has experienced an abortion is not welcome here. That's anti-gospel. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. And sin is a part of all of our stories. And I will, I think, confidently go a step further. That sexual sin is a part of most all of our stories on some level. I personally mourn over and still battle shame of previous sexual sin in my life. And I find myself, more than you know, needing to speak truth over that shame, that God freed me from that, that he fully forgives me for it. And I'm called to live in that freedom and you are too. And that at Grace Church, you don't need to stay in the shadows, but you can walk in the light and be fully loved, fully accepted. Pharaoh's short-term plan. We saw Pharaoh's long-term plan. But now, praise God, we see God's eternal plan. The passage climaxes at verse 17. I think it's where it changes. Let me read it again. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
Here's what's interesting about this passage. In all likelihood, many years passed, maybe even decades between verse 16 and verse 17. Pharaoh gives this command to Shipra and Pua. He's playing the long game. He's going to weaken the Hebrew nation over time as a male-less generation grows up. But somewhere along the line, maybe some of his advisors came to Pharaoh and said, Hey, boss, have you looked around recently? A lot of boys. In fact, I see no difference from when before you gave the command. And so Pharaoh says, you're right, what's up with this? He calls the two midwives into the principal's office. He says, why have you been letting the male children live? Was I not clear? And these two women, Shipra and Pua, defy Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, right to his face. Here's what I love about this. We know their names. Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intentional about the fact he does not give us Pharaoh's name. It's just Pharaoh. But these two Hebrew midwives will forever be etched and celebrated in history. Shipra and Pua. First one, a grace to name their daughter that wins. <laughs> but how significant? We know their names. And they say to his face, uh, these Hebrew women, they're just different, man. Like, they're not like the Egyptians. They're just having their babies without the epidural. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're just, they're, they're just doing it. We're not even getting there. They have it all covered. We don't even have the chance. And the best part is Pharaoh just kind of believes it. Like, he's just like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, I can see that. Um, because he doesn't punish them. He doesn't cast them away. He believes them. And I can't spend really much time on this, but he, a question does arise from this moment. Shipper and Pua just lied to Pharaoh. Is it wrong they lied? My card's on the table. I say no. Most will say no. Many prominent commentators will say yes, but God even worked despite their sin in this. Um, but I, I think there is an aspect that we see throughout Scripture. We saw it with Rahab. We saw it here. We see it really the modern equivalent that everyone will kind of go to is if you, were, um, in, uh, the, uh, if you were in Germany or France in the 1940s and you had Jews hiding in your house and Nazis came to your door and said, are there any Jews here? Is it wrong to lie? I don't think it's wrong when it's for the protection of a vulnerable people that will be oppressed. And so I do not think Shipra and Pua were in sin here. I don't think the text lends itself to that because God rewards them doesn't even just work despite them, but we also need to be very careful to not use this logic to justify the lies in our life. Because we can get in our heads with this, can't we? I'm not gonna report all my income on my income taxes because I need a little bit more to send my kids to Christian school. And I can't send them to Christian school unless I lie on my taxes, so this is okay. You know what I mean? Like We can get this down this slippery slope very quickly, um, but I think in the text, in the passage, we can make the case that when you are protecting the most vulnerable from oppression, that you are honoring God in this, that Chipper and Pua honored God. But here's the central point this passage makes. Shipra and Pua feared God more than they feared man. Their fear of God overpowered their fear of man and led them to stand for and save the lives of the oppressed. And in the Christian life, 
The constant battle you and I face every single day comes down to this. Will we fear God or will we fear man? Surely these two knew that by defying Pharaoh to their face, it could cost them. At best, it could have costed them their job, their well-being, their safety, their comfort, and certainly even their life. But their fear of opposing God was far greater than their fear of opposing man and losing their lives. And so they acted accordingly. So, so listen close. Again, if you're taking notes, listen close. Here's the difference. What's the difference between fear of God and fear of man? Here's the difference. When you fear man over God, you will move towards hatred and suppression of what is good. When you fear God over man, you will move towards the hatred and suppression of what is evil. Fear of man leads to the hatred of what is good. Fear of God leads to the hatred of what is evil. And we are faced with this decision in small ways and big ways every single day. Pharaoh feared man, and it led him to suppress what is good. Supra and Pua feared God, and it led to the defiant suppression of what is evil. Proverbs 1 tells us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. What is wisdom? The ability to discern good from evil, and then the courage to live it out. As a result, Shipra and Pua, blessed by God, given families of their own, they did what was right. But here's what's important. If Pharaoh killed them on the spot, they still made the right decision. Amen? Fear God and be faithful and trust whatever happens to you, to the Lord. It's not only for your good and your joy. It's for the good of all around you, especially the most vulnerable among you. Well, Pharaoh, he's angry now, he's frustrated, he's getting juked by the Hebrews, they keep spreading, they keep multiplying, these babies keep getting bored, born, so he goes off the rails. Last verse, Egyptian, uh, Exodus 1, verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This guy is off the rails. He's done with the secrecy. He's exposing his evil out for everyone to see. He says to all people, gives every Egyptian the authority, you see a Hebrew boy, you toss him into the river. You see a Hebrew girl, you let her live. We need her to enslave her. It's effective. It's clean. All the blood gets thrown into the river. You don't have to deal with the mess. They just sink. This is the best solution. The dude is off the rails. But he thinks He's got it. He didn't maybe want to start with this, but he's here. And this will defy the Hebrews, and this will defy their God. Listen close. Do not think for a second that there is any coincidence that the first plague that will come upon Egypt by God will be the Nile River turning to blood. You want blood in the Nile, Pharaoh? I'll give you blood. I am God, and there is no other. When you oppose God, be careful what you ask for. As many of you know, if you know your Bible, this will not be the last time 
that a ruler of the Israelites will call for the mass murder of newborn baby boys. We just came off the Advent season, the Christmas story that doesn't get shared as often during Advent. After Jesus was born, Herod, leader of the Jews in that area, he's paranoid, he's told a king has been born by the wise men, and he's freaking out. And so he follows what? The pathway of oppression. Fear of this newborn king that threatens his power turns to hatred, which leads to an oppressive policy. What's that policy? You don't have to turn there, Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. But he didn't get Jesus. Because Joseph was made aware of this in a dream, took his wife and took his child to become refugees, where? In Egypt, of all places. And this Jesus would be spared in order to carry out his mission to defy the powers of evil and in doing so save God's people, just like Shipra and Pua, to save the most vulnerable from spiritual oppression, past, present, and future. This is me, this is you to offer forgiveness for those who rebelled against God, to bring redemption to those who were once enemies. And the way he did it was the way of the cross. And he feared God more than he feared man. And in that garden, sweating blood, he took the cup that was given to him to give his own life for those who would humble themselves, repent of their sin, and put their faith in him. When you fear God over man, it leads to salvation. It leads to repentance and faith. It leads to your joy. And from there, we are all called to walk together the pathway of obedience, to be faithful where we are, to trust that God has us in his hands, whether it brings blessing or persecution, that he has us. Well, I can't imagine what this past couple weeks and year has been for Pastor Wong's family. For his wife, for his children, for his church. But here's what I do know. That in trying to oppress him, in trying to oppress his ministry, the gospel continues to spread. And Pastor Wong feared God more than he feared man. And in doing so, he played a part in suppressing what is evil. And he did it for the glory of God. If Pastor Wong was never arrested, we wouldn't know his name. But now we know his name. And now we know his story. And in persecution, God is using him for the spread of his holy name. And I am sure of this. However it ends for Pastor Wong, however it ends for me, however it ends for you, God will get the glory. Pastor Wong will get the blessing. And the gospel will spread to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how stunningly relevant it is in 2020. How it's almost a continual surprise for us to see that anything we see or feel now is not new. Father, that you have created it, that you have redeemed it in your son, and you have invited us to believe in him by faith, Lord, and to then play a part in the suppression 
of what is evil. Father, I pray as a church you would give us the courage to do what we can. That you would give us the courage to step into the darkness while shining the light to help those who are most vulnerable amongst us, Lord. Pray that that would stir us for your name's sake. I pray that you would stir our joy for you, that you would give us the ability to fear you over the fear of man. And we thank you, Lord, that you will get the glory. In your name we pray, amen.